Hello everyone and welcome back. For those of you listening that are not on the Facebook page, I apologize for not getting an episode out last week. It was the end of Girl Scout cookie season and after getting cookie sales finalized, it just didn't leave much room to get the show ready. So today we're going to switch things up a little bit and do a listener requested case from the Facebook page. So let's get started. Between 1971 and 1976, three horrific murders shocked the small community of Waverly and left many, even law enforcement, to question if these murders were committed by a single individual or if the police were looking for multiple assailants. So just how many serial predators did Waverly have hiding in plain sight? To this day, that question has yet to be answered. This is the case of the Waverly Stranglings. It was June 1971, and 14-year-old Valerie Klosowski was officially on summer vacation. She lived in small-town Waverly, Iowa with her father, Harold, widowed grandma, Mrs. Clarence Klosowski, and two sisters. Valerie was the middle child of all three girls. Her older sister, Denise, was 16, and her younger sister, Michelle, was 12. Valerie's mother and father had been married and divorced three separate times from each other. During their times between being together and separated, the family had moved around pretty frequently and had spent some time living in Charles City and from there had moved to Hampton. They moved again and had briefly lived in Sioux City before settling in Waverly, where they had been living for five years as of June of 1971. Valerie was described as quiet but friendly and she had a knack for music. She was a guitarist, pianist, and a singer. She even wrote her own songs as well as poetry. Family and friends also described the teen as strong, muscular, athletic, and always on the go. On Sunday, June 13th, Valerie had spent a large part of the day with her friend Luann Hicks. The two teens had spent some time in the Waverly Park having a picnic, and then they spent a couple of hours talking and just walking around town before parting ways and heading home late that afternoon. Later that evening, another friend of Valerie's, Cindy Newgren, had stopped by the house and had asked Valerie to go swimming with her at the local pool, which was about a half mile away from the Klosowski home. Valerie's grandmother told her she could go and to be home by 9 p.m. According to Valerie's friend Cindy, the girls got dropped off at the pool by Cindy's parents, Bob and Effie Newgren. The girls had decided to plan on the evening swim session and then a sleepover at Cindy's house. The girls paid their admission to swim and then proceeded to the changing rooms to change into their swimsuits. Out of nowhere, Valerie handed her swimsuit and towel to Cindy and told her that she was going to go meet someone and that she would be back to swim in about an hour. Cindy said that she had a bad feeling right away after hearing this. She and Valerie had been friends for a long time, and Valerie had never done anything like this before. Valerie had appeared nervous and told Cindy the person she was planning to meet that he would be mad if she was late. Cindy begged her not to go, but she had made her a promise that she would be back. Cindy went ahead to the pool and ran to the chain link fence, looked out and saw Valerie walking away. 
Cindy called back to Valerie in one final attempt to keep her from leaving, but Valerie just smiled and again said she would be right back. Cindy stood at that chain link fence and watched for several minutes as Valerie walked away, not knowing that would be the last time she would see her friend alive. Cindy waited and waited, but Valerie never returned, and when Cindy's parents returned to the pool to pick her up, Cindy told them what had happened while still holding Valerie's swimsuit and towel. Panic immediately set in for the new grins and picked up Cindy to head towards Valerie's home. Cindy remembers holding Valerie's suit and towel in her lap in the car and thinking the worst. When Cindy returned to the Klosowski home, she handed Valerie's swimsuit and towel to Mrs. Clarence Klosowski and told her what had happened. Mrs. Klosowski immediately told Valerie's father. They sat and waited for Valerie to return home, but as the clock ticked and Valerie hadn't returned, they became more and more concerned. And by 10 p.m., Harold could no longer wait and called police to report that his daughter was missing. Valerie never came home that evening, and Monday came and went with no word from his daughter. Different newspapers gave conflicting accounts of Valerie's last movements after she left the swimming pool. According to one report, Valerie and Cindy had stopped to talk with someone outside of the swimming pool, and Cindy went in while Valerie stayed behind but Cindy's accounts of events state that just isn't true. After Valerie left the pool, she showed up at Luann Hicks' home, but Luann wasn't there, so Valerie spoke with one of Luann's sisters, but then walked off. She had not been with anyone at this stop. Some eyewitnesses claim to have spotted Valerie on a street corner in town around 8.30 p.m., and according to one news article, Valerie's older sister Denise was sitting on the front porch of a friend's house and saw Valerie crossing Highway 218 alone around 8.50 p.m., and the Waverly swimming pool was about one block away from the highway. Reports state that there were sightings of Valerie near the Waverly swimming pool around 9 p.m., so it could have been plausible that she returned to the pool to meet up with Cindy, but the pool had long been closed by the time Valerie showed up, and after that, the girl's whereabouts are unknown. When Tuesday afternoon had come, Harold and the community's worst nightmare was confirmed. Either two or four young boys, depending on the source, had been walking on a rural country road located 10 miles southeast of Waverly and about two miles west of Denver in Bremer County when they spotted something lying in a creek bank under a bridge. It was the partially nude body of Valerie Klosowski. The bridge above the creek had a three-foot-high railing and investigators were unable to determine whether Valerie had been killed at another location and carried down to the creek bank where she had been killed in the vicinity and whoever took her life had dropped her body from the bridge, which was about a 12-foot drop. The creek was in sight of a heavily wooded area referred to by people in the community as the Big Woods, and it was just three miles south of the Boy Scout camp in Gowanus. The only remaining clothing on Valerie was her upper clothing items, which had been pulled up around her shoulders, and all undergarments, including her shoes, were gone. Police confirmed that there had been tire tracks found at the scene, but never elaborated on any additional details or clues those tracks could provide. Once the autopsy was completed, it was confirmed Valerie's cause of death was strangulation, and her time of death was either late Sunday night or early Monday morning, and she was strangled with so much force that the killer had fractured her larynx, and upon initial assessment of her body, it did not show signs of any sexual assault. The Bremer County Sheriff's Office, Waverly Police, 
and agents from the Bureau of Criminal Investigation all investigated the murder, and 14 members of the Waverly Police's Auxiliary Force were sent out to interview families in the area where Valerie's body had been found. Within 48 hours of her death, police had conducted some 100 interviews and canvassed 100 homes in Waverly and where Valerie's body was found, but they were getting no closer to finding her killer. Luann Hicks had done an interview with a reporter in which she regretted not being home and felt if she had, Valerie wouldn't have been killed. She also went on to say that Valerie was always getting into vehicles with strangers, and Luann had even stopped her from doing so on several occasions. This somewhat contradicted Valerie's friends and family's description of her, but Luann claimed that she was, quote, mixed up. So it may have been possible this was a time where Valerie, being a young teenager, was going through some sort of phase, but we can't be certain either way. I am assuming police would have interviewed Luann, but aside from her interview in the paper, it doesn't appear that she had ever spoken publicly again regarding the events leading up to Valerie's death. Also, according to Luann, a friend had told her they had seen Valerie getting onto a motorcycle with a stranger late Sunday evening, but as of Wednesday, investigators were keeping details out of the public. Valerie's death baffled her family, and they wondered who on earth could have done this. Valerie was about 5 feet 6 inches tall, 145 pounds, and was considered muscular and pretty strong. Her family believed that whoever killed her would have had to have been very strong to overpower her. Denise said that her sister had dated at least three boys. One of them was Danny Odom, who was 14 and an 8th grade classmate of Valerie's the previous year, at Waverly Junior High School. Danny said that they would play guitar together and talk mostly, and there were no details regarding the other two boys that we know of. On June 19th, police called a press conference to provide a progress report and to appeal to citizens who might have information to come forward. As of the press conference, police were still waiting on the pathologist's report so they couldn't definitively say one way or another whether Valerie had been sexually assaulted. After people in the community began to hear talk that Valerie was seen getting onto a motorcycle the night she vanished, rumors began to surface that a motorcycle gang had been in the Waverly area that weekend and that Valerie was seen with one of its members. Chief Kemming didn't confirm either way and just said they had the information and were following up on it. A little over one week after Valerie was found on June 23rd, police made a public announcement that almost all leads received had been exhausted and there didn't appear to be any arrest to happen in the near future. By this time, it was confirmed that the pathologist's report had been received, but the details were not made public. On July 15th, about one month after the murder, police confirmed that they had conducted 150 interviews, and some of the people interviewed had been re-interviewed up to five more times. They then changed their story and said they were still following up on leads, and apparently had been waiting for further lab reports to come in. There may have been reports of Valerie's death on the news or possibly even articles in local papers, but no new information that I could find. So that is where the case sat after one month, and there was nothing else to report on, and Valerie's death just seemed to lose public interest. That is, until another murder re-sparked interest in Valerie's case. Almost five years later, on Thursday, March 18, 1976, a Butler County road maintenance worker named Roscoe Holbert was doing some road work when he came across a nude, muddy, and decomposed body 
and a roadside ditch along a quiet road about one mile northeast of Shell Rock, Iowa. After dental comparison, it was determined the body was that of Waverly resident, 19-year-old Julia Ann Benning. Based on the scene, it appeared Julia had been stuffed into a culvert where her body had been over winter, and once warmer spring weather hit, the rainwaters had pushed her body out of the culvert and into the ditch. An autopsy report listed Julia's cause and manner of death as homicidal violence caused by injury to the throat area, which implied Julia, like Valerie, had also died by strangulation. Julia was originally from Clarksville, where she had lived with her parents and was the oldest of five girls, who had graduated from Plainfield High School in 1975. Julia, also like Valerie, was very creative and artistic. She designed and created her own clothes, she loved to paint, enjoyed music, and was also interested in investigative journalism. Standing at just 4 feet 11 inches, she was also described as being very ambitious, full of life, and just loved to meet people. Julia had been unable to attend college right away because her family just couldn't afford it. So Julia went around looking for a job to save up money for school. So she found a job in the downtown district of Waverly at a place called the Sur Lounge. The Sur Lounge was basically an exotic dancers club, but Julia worked there only as a cocktail waitress and never had any intentions to change her job position while there. Her parents were very concerned about her job choice and were concerned for her safety, but she assured them that everything would be fine. Clarksville was about a 20-minute drive away from Waverly, so while Julia was working at the Sur Lounge, she decided to stay in Waverly with her grandma and her aunt. Julia was scheduled to show up for work on Friday, November 28th of 1975, but according to her boss, she didn't show and again was scheduled for work on Saturday, November 29th, but didn't call and didn't show up. That's when Julia's boss contacted her parents. Once learning of Julia not showing up at home or work, Julia's father, Lowell Benning, drove from Clarksville to Waverly to report his daughter missing to Police Chief Clarence Wickham. Lowell knew that Julia would never take off without telling anyone where she was going, but because Julia was a legal adult, the police chief advised Lowell to reach out to media outlets himself. He went to newspapers and local radio stations and was able to get KWWL Radio to report on Julia's disappearance. This also prompted a Bureau of Criminal Investigation agent to work with the family. When initial eyewitness statements started to come in to piece together Julia's movements, eyewitnesses said that she was seen walking down Bremer Avenue in the direction of work. There had also been reports that she had been seen in a shoe repair store at approximately 5.05 p.m. to pick up a pair of shoes before heading to work. There were some initial reports that contradicted these statements, and some people had come forward claiming that Julia said she had planned to attend a dance in Waterloo that night, and before Julia's body had been discovered on December 24th of 1975, a news article published in The Courier out of Waterloo claimed that on Tuesday, December 23rd, investigators following up on a tip that a woman fitting Julia's description had reportedly been seen with a member from John Wills and Hot Cotton Band that had been playing in Waterloo. Chief Wickham contacted the band member mentioned in the report and claimed that he didn't know who Julia Benning was and she was not the girl with him at that time. 
At the time of Julia's employment at the Sir Lounge, it was operated by a woman named Jean Weston. And according to the schedule, Julia was scheduled to work that day. Julia was not the kind of girl to miss work, especially since she was saving money for college. In an initial statement Jean gave, she said, quote, I'd taken her home after work Thanksgiving night. And when she got out of the car, Julia said, I'll see you tomorrow night. When she didn't come in the first night, I thought maybe she'd planned to take some time off and I had just forgotten. But when she missed two nights, I talked with my husband and he said, call her folks. Later, reports by eyewitnesses that had come into Iowa cold cases stated that Julia had in fact made it to work that evening and was seen by other employees and lounge patrons. Eyewitness accounts claim that Julia disappeared under mysterious circumstances while she was working in the front entryway of the lounge and collecting cover charges. But to this day, there is no explanation for the difference in Jean's accounts of events that night. And although there have been some speculation about what happened after Julia had arrived at work, there has never been any concrete witness statements as to why she seemed to vanish. In an interesting side note, apparently Chief Wickham had told the paper he knew Miss Benning and occasionally had talked to her, but never saw her with anyone in particular. He then made a pausing comment. He claimed he knew Julia hitchhiked a lot. People felt that this was the chief's attempt to direct the cause of Julia's death to a hitchhiking ride gone wrong, but family and friends claimed Julia never did anything like that. A few months after Julia's body was found, investigators had released some artist sketches portraying how Julia would have looked and had been dressed on November 28th. Gloria Aliff and Associates, also of Waverly, prepared the drawings voluntarily and released them to the press for distribution in an attempt to refresh the memory of people in the community if they had seen her that night. In an unfortunate twist of fate, one of the last things Julia had completed in high school was a school newspaper editorial regarding the controversy of life imprisonment and the death penalty in regards to murder, which read, quote, murder is a horrible crime to commit, and, of course, the offender must be punished. But does that mean he should rot in prison until he dies? I don't think so. Nor do I think any person has the right to say someone should never be let out of prison or give them the death penalty. Put yourself in their shoes. The convicts are still humans too. I hope people will be willing to help them and lend support in convicts' efforts to rehabilitate themselves. Sadly, it wouldn't be too long after discovering Julia's body that police would receive a call of another. The day after Labor Day, just shy of six months after Julia's body had been found, and about 10 months after she went missing, a woman was found lying face down in a ditch in rural Bremer County. The woman was later identified as 19-year-old Marie Peake, who went by Lisa. Lisa was a sophomore at the Wartburg College located in Waverly. She was completely nude and had been found at 11 a.m. under a cottonwood tree beside a gravel road near a farm and a quarter mile north of Waverly city limits. Lisa's autopsy confirmed that she had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and her death was due to suffocation and a broken neck. And just like in Julia's case, none of Lisa's clothing was found at the scene. Lisa was the daughter of Dr. Frank Peake and Mary Peake. Frank was a veterinarian and former city councilman in Knoxville, Iowa. Lisa was majoring in journalism at Wartburg College, so just like Julia, she had interest in investigative journalism and she had just returned to school from summer break on Sunday, September 5th. 
Friends of Lisa's said they last saw her the next afternoon, Monday, September 6th. She had been wearing a pink blouse and jeans and was planning to go shopping at the Willow Lawn Shopping Center in Waverly. And again, just like in Julia's case, Lisa said she had made plans to go to a shoe store while shopping. Although it's never made clear if Lisa visited the same shoe store Julia did, at the time, Waverly didn't have many options. So from what I could gather, there was only one shoe store in town at that time. When Lisa failed to return back to her dorm room, her friends had reported her missing. To make the circumstances around Lisa's disappearance even more puzzling, earlier in the year, Lisa had been working with law enforcement regarding a sex and extortion scheme after falling victim to a sexual predator and the information she provided led to the arrest of 40-year-old used car salesman John Joseph Carmody Jr. of Mason City. Carmody had blackmailed over a dozen women, including Lisa, into having sex with him, and if they refused, he threatened them with mafia retaliation. FBI officers involved in the case later proved that Carmody's claims to having mafia ties were completely bogus and in May of 1976, he pled guilty to rape and extortion charges and was sentenced to 40 years at Fort Madison State Penitentiary. During the time of his arrest and conviction, Lisa had spent her time working as a reporter for the Clarksville Star. Interestingly enough, Lisa and an Iowa writer by the name of Chuck Offenberger were planning on writing a book about the blackmail scheme, and in August of the same year, they had written to Carmody in prison. And he wrote back through his attorney that he and his writers were on board and they would provide material to be used to portray his side of the story. After Lisa's murder, Offenberger had come forward stating that she had received threats from different women after Carmody's imprisonment who said they loved him and wanted to marry him. FBI officials were almost certain that the deaths of Julia Benning and Marie Peake were connected due to the similarities in the cases and they felt bringing in an FBI profiler would help bring in further clues to solve the cases. As of now, we don't know the full profile the FBI had put together in connection to the murders, but one thing they did release was that the killer followed a pattern of holiday murders. Julia was likely killed the same day she was taken, the day after Thanksgiving, and Lisa was murdered the day she went missing on Labor Day. It's also important to note that even though Valerie wasn't taken during a holiday, it was the beginning of summer break. As decades passed, it finally became a possibility, as DNA testing had advanced, for investigators to take a second look at the evidence between the three women to find the killer or killers. On May 7th of 2010, officials had exhumed Lisa's body, hoping a re-examination would yield new DNA previously missed to be tested. But just two and a half months later, they announced that her coffin was too broken down and her body too deteriorated to extract and test the killer's DNA. One of the theories that seems to be pretty heavily discussed is that all three murders had been the work of a serial killer by the name of Robert Theodore Bundy, also known as Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy's known timeframes of murders spanned from 1974 to 1978. However, many believe his murder started prior to 1974, but there doesn't seem to be any indication that he had been in or near Iowa between 1971 and 1976. One thing that I will point out is that Bundy was known for necrophilia. The majority of the victims he killed, he would take them to isolated areas away from roads and people so he could return to them at later times. So although these girls were found in rural areas, they were all located next to gravel roads 
in plain sight, with the exception of Julia being put into the culvert. But those locations wouldn't really give him the opportunity to revisit them without the risk of getting caught. So it doesn't appear the way these girls were found really fit Bundy's M.O., but he was definitely active during these times, and the case remains unsolved. So at this point, unless there is concrete evidence that proves whether or not Bundy had actually been in Iowa during at least one of those murders, I guess it's not outside the realm of possibility. Another interesting link that caught FBI's attention was the fact that both Benning and Peek had gone shoe shopping the evening of their disappearances. Now, it could just be a coincidence, but it also could be a possibility that they were dealing with a predator with a shoe fetish. Sources state that this lead was checked out, and as of today, we haven't heard any more about it. One of the big things to take away from the deaths of these women is their similarities. All three women were found in rural areas off of Gravel Road, two of them in Bremer County and one in Butler County. All were strangled and suffered some sort of throat or neck wound, and all were either mostly naked or completely naked when they were found. Some people think that Valerie's age, compared to Julia and Lisa, makes it likely that someone else was responsible for her murder. But if you remember, Valerie, at age 14, was already 5'6 and 145 pounds. This certainly could have given the perpetrator the impression that she was older than 14. And if what her friend Luann said was true, that she would often get rides from strangers, then how likely is it that she just got into the wrong car and someone believed her to be closer to 17 or 18? All three girls were located within 10 miles of Waverly, a town of less than 7,000 people. In a tragic situation such as this, the best scenario is that the same man murdered all three of these women, which gives police the hope of finding him and bringing answers to the families because the worst case scenario is that none of them are connected and the possibility that there could be as many as three perpetrators out there. Some could be dead, but depending on their age, some could still be alive and living among society to this day. Whether all three of these young women were killed by one man or several is still highly up for debate. FBI officials feel that only one man is responsible for the deaths of Marie Peake and Julia Benning, but they aren't so sure in the case of Valerie Klasowski. Sadly, DNA evidence may not be usable since we are now looking at over 45 years since these tragic murders occurred and the DNA available has now become too degraded to test. But it's definitely safe to say someone knows something. So if you have any information regarding the murders of Valerie Klasowski, Julia Benning, or Marie Peake, please contact the Federal Bureau of Investigation at 712-258-1920 or the IDCI at 515-725-6010. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Tune in next week for a new episode. Secrets in the Cornfield is an Anchor original Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. For pictures and additional discussion, make sure you join the Facebook group by searching Secrets in the Cornfield podcast and joining the group. To help the families and to provide a voice for the victims, please be sure to follow, rate the show, and share.